episode four of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I'm your host, as always, Trey Whetstone, and today we're reaching our pulse-pounding conclusion to our Val Luton creator spotlight. Remember, you can check back in every two weeks to get your bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. And if I thought last week's episode was jam-packed, it's got nothing on this one. Got a ton of stuff to cover, so we're going to jump into it. Right after I get started, I have a couple corrections I actually want to go over from Dark Mark, and I will gladly accept any corrections from Dark Mark because he's pretty much, in my eyes, one of the people that know the most about the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, so on and so forth, those older horror movies. I think he really gets into the Universal stuff, this Val Luton stuff, so gladly accept your corrections, Mark. First of all, I wanted to clarify, I had mentioned something about The Second Victim being maybe the first shared universe film with Dr. Judd being in that and Cat People. Well, Mark had said, you know, Seventh Victim came out in August of 1943, but Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman actually came out in March of 1943. So Universal beat Luton to the punch by a few months. Mark was saying, not sure what was in the air, but both of these studios were working on similar ideas at the time, at least with the shared universes, but still very early for both. And secondly, I was speculating on why Luton would have wanted to turn down the bigger budget for keeping his buddy Mark Robeson in as a director. Well, that's exactly what Mark said. Robeson was his friend and really wanted to direct, and Luton wanted to be loyal to his friends. From what I understand, yes, Luton was very loyal. I should have known that. I didn't. Mark pointed me in the right direction, though, so I appreciate that. We'll see where, unfortunately, his loyalty got him later on. That's what I wanted to do to start this up. Again, there's a spoiler warning for all films covered in this episode. I will be deep diving into The Body Snatcher and Isle of the Dead from 1945, and I'll at least be scratching the surface on Bedlam from 1946. Without further ado, let's go ahead and open up your books to Chapter 1, Page 4, as we wrap up our Val Luton coverage. So when we last left off, Luton was trying to reach out into other genres, and unfortunately that didn't work. He also had lost his biggest supporter, Charles Kerner, who had to leave due to being sick. So Val was really up against it. Something else was coming down the pipeline that he was not happy about. And I could see it from that perspective, but let's go ahead and get into it and then we can dig into this matter. So Jack Gross is the production executive now at RKO. And he tells Luton that he has signed Boris Karlov to a two-picture deal and that he's going to be the one to use him. Now, this makes sense. Karlov coming over from Universal. He's doing horror movies. He's known for doing horror movies. He's an icon in the horror movie realm. Val Luton coming into his own right as an icon in the horror movie realm. It makes sense that you put the two together and have them maybe pick up where the failures were in the past Val Luton films where they weren't doing as much money, they weren't pulling in as much business. Let's bring in a big star who's willing to come in and do horror movies and put him in your horror films. So how does Boris Karloff jump ship from Universal? Well, by 1944, Karloff felt that the Frankenstein franchise had really run its course. And the last one that he did was House of Frankenstein. And he referred to this as a monster clambake and really found it ridiculous. So he decided not to renew his contract with Universal, and instead, he wanted to go work with Val Luton at RKO. Now, we've said Luton has felt one way about this, but Karloff has been quoted as saying, 
Luton was the man who rescued him from the living dead and restored his soul, so to speak. Now, very poetic, but it's a nice sentiment that he was excited to get in there and work with these films. And I think you can tell that he was excited. He wanted to throw off this Frankenstein baggage he'd been carrying. He didn't want to wear all that makeup. He didn't want to go through films that he thought were just doing the same thing over and over and were getting a little bit ridiculous. He wanted to go work for this serious horror producer over at RKO. While he wasn't alone, Bela Lugosi also decided to sign a deal with RKO. When he signed on, a small part was written into The Body Snatcher for him, and we'll get into The Body Snatcher, Isle of the Dead is a whole weird thing that we're going to get into probably more when we talk about Isle of the Dead. But he signs one with RKO, and they write a small part for him in The Body Snatcher. And turns out that The Body Snatcher would be the last time that Lugosi and Karloff would appear on screen together, which is pretty monumental, really, for those two legends. So there we have it. We've got these two iconic horror legends coming over to RKO. They're jumping ship. I think in most times this would be seen as a big deal. I mean, this is too... Yeah, maybe the movies are getting a little bit ridiculous and redundant at this point, but these are two major stars jumping ship from the competitor that, if you'll remember back to episode one, I mean, Kerner set up the studio to compete with Universal's horror movies and to make a viable competitor. And here we have it. We've got Lugosi and Karloff, maybe not in their prime at Universal, but I think at least for Karloff, he would do some amazing things at his time with RKO. Landscape is changing a little bit. We no longer have these contemporary set films like Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie. Instead, maybe he caught a little something from Mademoiselle Fifi that he just couldn't shake. But we're doing period pieces here, and they would progressively get older as we go along if you take the films in the order they were actually made or set to be made. And I think they also get more brutal as well. I think these films just get kind of vicious. The Body Snatcher absolutely is a vicious film. Um, Isle of the Dead gets into some stuff. And Bedlam, I don't know if it's as vicious, but it does take on some pretty hard-hitting subjects. Now, I had mentioned that these films were kind of out of order. I'm going to wait to get into that until we talk about Isle of the Dead. The Body Snatcher did release first. So let's go ahead and start off with The Body Snatcher. The Body Snatcher would see the return of director Robert Wise. If you remember, he had helped to finish up Curse of the Cat People, and also he had directed Mademoiselle Fifi. So Val Luton's kind of got this rotating director situation where it's robes and wise, robes and wise. That's at least what he's setting up. And we've seen that building probably since the ghost ship where Robeson directed. Now, he didn't at first, choose Robert Wise to curse the cat people, but he did come in and help, and then he gave him a couple more projects after that. So these were his two directors that he could go off and on with and switch back and forth. Writing credits would go to Philip McDonald, and this is Luton's first writing credit, but he went under the pseudonym of Carlos Keith. Luton would have two writing credits, and we'll talk about the other one later and that's it. Everything else was just producer for him. But he did allow himself to get some credit on this film, just under a different name. During filming, there was a lot of tension between Luton and Jack Gross, probably stemming a little bit from the Karloff situation, but also probably stemming from what we've talked about before with he's lost Charles Kerner, who was his biggest ally. He's now having to get all of his scripts approved and probably having all these hands in everything he's doing now. 
it's probably a lot harder to do his job. And all he wants is to be left alone, really. I think all Luton wanted was to be left alone and make his movies with his friends. Due to their fighting, it's reported that Gross gave him a lower budget on The Body Snatcher, which is pretty crappy, but, I mean, it happens. I don't think you feel the lower budget, so that's okay with me. Now, this is based on a short story from Robert Louis Stevenson, the famous author Robert Louis Stevenson, and the short story had the same title of The Body Snatcher. So they're already pulling off a known source, and they've got a good foundation to work with. There are several mentions in this film of Burke, Hare, and Dr. Knox, and this all refers back to the Westport murders that took place in Edinburgh in 1828. And similarly to this, you've got, you know, the story here of Gray and Dr. McFarlane, and they seem to be very closely related to these characters so you can see where that's coming from, but this is pretty much based on real stuff. The foundation for this story was based on real events. And one last thing before we get into the synopsis and start talking about this film. I believe this may be Karloff's best performance of his career. I know he had went on to do a lot after his RKO deals, but he's firing on all cylinders with all three of these films. Say what you want about the films, and I will, but Karloff is not phoning anything in. He has the spirit of a man renewed, and he's putting everything into his acting. And this performance here, he has some dimensions to him. You can see him acting in different ways. There's a scene early on where he's very polite and nice and loving, almost, to this young girl. He treats her very well. And then we get some of those layers peeled off, and we see who Grey really is, his character Grey. He's got a lot of different layers. He can act like he's sympathetic, he can act like he's going along with something, and he can just straight up go slimeball from 0 to 60 in a couple of pieces in this film. I love that he's always referring to Dr. McFarlane as Toddy. I love that. It's a running joke throughout the movie, and it's great. I love every time he says Toddy, and the way he says it, it's just amazing to me. All that being said, yeah, he's a very sleazy character in this. Very much a slime ball, but... I mean, so are a lot of the other characters in this world they set up. I still think it's easy to love and enjoy Carlos' performance here, even though he is playing the slimiest of the slimiest. I've been trying to stay away from the taglines recently, but this one's just too good, and I think it gives a good impression of where RKO is at at this point. Graves raided. Coffins robbed. Corpses carved. Midnight murder. Body blackmail. Stalking ghouls, mad thrills of terror and macabre mystery. And don't blame us if you stay awake all night. That's pretty sensational, that's pretty long, but you can sense that it has a more gruesome tone and it's got a more sinister tone to it. I think RKO at this point, like we said, they're not just letting Val Luton run roughshod. They're like, nah, you might have tricked us with those other ones. You're, you were hiding stuff within these horror movies. These weren't horror enough. We're going to make sure this thing is sold as a horror movie. We're going to check all your scripts to make sure they're horror movies. You're not pulling a fast one on us. That's what I think is going on anyway. But let's get into this synopsis. Edinburgh, 1831. Among those who undertake the illegal trade of grave robbery is Gray, ostensibly a cab driver, formerly a medical student convicted of grave robbery. Gray holds a grudge against Dr. McFarlane, who had escaped detection and punishment. That's not bad, but it does get into a little bit of... Spoiler territory, I think. Not major spoilers, but it there's this whole mystery leading up to 
what do these two have in common? Why is Gray always around McFarlane? Why is he always messing with him? And what is their former relationship? And I think that synopsis kind of gives it away. So maybe stay away from that one. So like I said earlier, we're moving on to period piece type things. I said this is set in Edinburgh in 1831. And it's set against that backdrop of those 1828 Westport murders we had mentioned before. At the beginning here, and I also mentioned this with Karloff, he's a cab driver and his character's name is Gray. And he's taking this little girl who can't walk and her mom to see Dr. McFarlane. He drops him off at the door and he gives this line about, oh, look out for my horse and it'll say hi to you to the little girl. This really makes her day and it's going to play a bigger part going forward in the movie. We get early on a good establishment of what Dr. McFarlane is, what his character is. This little girl goes in and he's going to inspect her due to a favor to a friend who had recommended them to him. He's very much all business. He has no time for the girl and any of her games assumes she's playing games because she's not answering him and I think he kind of scares her and you get that right from the beginning one of his students Fetz comes in and he tells him oh it's perfect timing you can come practice your bedside manner which is hilarious because Dr. McFarlane has zero bedside manner from what we're seeing here and Fetz he gets the girl to open up and tell him what's going wrong, and they're able to go on with their examination. Now, when they figure out what's gone wrong, Dr. McFarlane is able to assess what's gone wrong. They're going to tell Mrs. Marsh, who is the girl's mother, that he cannot do the operation on her daughter, because if he performed every procedure that came to him, he wouldn't have time to teach. And that's who he is. He's a teacher. He's not this practicing doctor. Like I said, this really gives us a glimpse into the character McFarlane. They don't waste any time giving us his kind of character and kind of laying it all out there. We see that he can be easily irritated when he's talking to the girl. We see that he's he's not exactly a warm, loving person. Yeah, maybe he could do this surgery, but is it a difficult surgery? Is it going to succeed? Who knows? I think we get a good glimpse into him. Now, Dr. McFarlane also makes this comment that's going to foreshadow and set up the rest of the film, that there aren't really enough cadavers to do experiments on. And he makes that comment to Fetz, I believe. I think the rule is, like, they can only take the poor people who have died or something something along those lines. And those are the ones that they can operate on and experiment with to learn new medical procedures. In the next scene, we get this great introduction to who Gray really is. And Fetz is down there. He's been made the doctor's assistant because he can't afford to stay there otherwise in the medical school. And Gray comes in with this body and he makes this comment about, oh, you better put it in the ledger and give me my 10 pounds or whatever it was that he paid him. And Fetz learns, and he's kind of learning with us, that this was a stolen body from a grave. It was someone that he had been talking to. It was their loved one that he talked to earlier. And he knew the person that this body was stolen from. Well, that doesn't sit right with him, and as any good character, he goes to Dr. McFarlane, he said, I'm done with this, I can't do this. And as the case with so many of these other Luton films, is we get this authority figure, or supposed authority figure, who kind of talks the protagonist off the ledge. And he's saying, hey, we need this, we need this for medical research, we need to save lives, we can save lives with this, and they're not using that body, why shouldn't we be using this body? And he talks him off the ledge. This happens over and over, and I say protagonist, and I use that loosely because, yes, Fetz is the mostly good force in this film. He does stray a little bit, but really the protagonist here 
is the tension between Grey and McFarlane and their little battle that they go on throughout this entire film. That's more of a main character to me and a protagonist, and it's definitely the main draw of the film. The Doctor goes back in, and he's saying all this stuff about, hey, I'd like to perform the procedure, but we just don't have enough cadavers to practice on. I can't practice my operation. So what does Fetz do? He really cares about this girl, and he really wants to help this girl. So he goes to Gray by himself. And Gray says, basically in a very slimy way, I'll get you what you need when you need it. Well, we've had this a couple times, and Fetz passes this girl on the way there, and it's a street singer. Very recognizable. He has seen her in the past, seen her several times. Well, he sees her on his way home, and what does Gray come in with but the body of this street singer? This pretty much pushes Fetz over the edge. But once again, we have McFarlane telling him, hey, you don't know, she could have died after you saw her. Anything could have happened. He's horrified by this, and it's not really a good situation for him to be in, but he really wants to save this little girl. Well, this allows them to do the surgery, and they think they've healed the girl, but that's when we really get this inclination that Grey is not this good character. We knew he was in, like, the gray area, uh, pun not intended there, but now we kind of know, yeah, he probably killed this singer. It wouldn't take us long to get confirmation. We have a little bit of back and forth in between, but when we see Gray kill, when we see Karloff's character kill in this movie, it's a memorable scene. I'll just say that. Joseph, who is played by Bela Lugosi, knows what's going on. He knows that Gray is stealing these bodies or getting these bodies from somewhere he's not supposed to, he goes over there to blackmail Gray. And Gray acts like he's going along with all this. He's like, sure, I'll pay you. And you know what? We can be partners. I'll tell you how we did it in the old days. And he's telling him all these stories and how it was done in the old days. And we get to this point and he says, you know, he's been all friendly to this point, but he said, you know, let me show you how they did it in the old days. And he basically suffocates Joseph here, who is kind of this, I don't know if he's a servant or just under the employ somehow of Dr. McFarlane, but he's he's sitting in this chair and he just kind of suffocates him and they lean, he puts his hand over his mouth and nose and they just kind of lean back in this chair as we see the life fade from Joseph. It's a very good scene and it's a very unsettling scene of how he does this. We've seen kills after kills after kills as horror movie fans but we don't always see stuff up close and personal like this this is a much worse way to go out than just getting stabbed i think but we see for the first time gray's true colors he is a murderer and he's a pretty sinister figure we've seen that so the genie's been let out of the bottle it's finally time to get some backstory and it comes from mcfarland's wife who is pleading with vets to get out of there and leave and she talks about how McFarlane's former teacher started a business with Gray of stealing bodies. When this all went to trial, basically McFarlane slipped out of it and Gray let it be known on the witness stand that he was being influenced by someone else or there was someone else pulling the strings behind the scenes. And he left that open in the trial so that if he ever needed to, he could turn this around on McFarlane and say that that was the person. So Gray took the fall for this scheme and they had kind of a falling out, but he's still working with McFarlane and that's where we see the tension. And there's several scenes where we've seen this tension where Gray basically 
bullies McFarlane into doing whatever because he has blackmail on him. He has some dirt on McFarlane. They sit in this tavern and are drinking and he forces McFarlane to buy him a drink and it's weird of time. Why are we, why is he letting this cab driver essentially boss him around and do things he doesn't want to do? And we do get this line from Gray several times where he says, you'll never be rid of me, Toddy. You'll never be rid of me. It's a very good foreshadow to what's going on. When this whole thing comes to a head, McFarlane's like, enough is enough. I have to confront Gray. Well, he goes and confronts Gray and he tries to bribe him. He tries to say, hey, take this money and get out. I don't ever want to see you again. It's here that we see the true motives is Gray is this lowly cabman who is a grave robber and steals bodies and is giving them to this supposed great man. But he has this power. He has something on this great man, on Dr. McFarlane. And he loves having that power. And it's the only thing that makes him feel like a man. This is great. This is the class struggle, right? This is the age-old, the poor striking back against the rich. And he loves having this hold and this pull over this very important man. And that's all he's living for, essentially, is what we're learning from him. This isn't going to go over well. And I don't know what... McFarlane thinks he's doing, but he just goes after Gray and they break out into a fight and Gray keeps saying, oh, I don't want to kill you and I don't want to kill you. Gray is clearly the superior man in this fight from what we see, and why wouldn't he be, as an opposing figure as he is, but they still have this struggle and McFarlane gets beat around and you can tell that Gray's holding back, but eventually McFarlane gets the upper hand and does kill him, and instead of having that close-up kill, we get another great use of shadows from Val Luton, and we just see the shadow of the two men. And this isn't the first time this happened by a long shot. I believe something similar to this happened in The Black Cat from 1932. If I'm remembering that right anyway, I think that happens. And in that film, we had a showdown between Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. So maybe that's an homage? I don't know if I'm even remembering that right. It's been so long since I've seen The Black Cat. But we've seen it before, for sure. It's just still a powerful scene, and I love it. Anytime that happens, that's really cool that you just see these shadows on the wall when one man is killing another. Well, what does he do now? McFarlane still wants to teach medicine. He still wants to operate on these cadavers, but he's lost his source. Well, he decides he's going to go dig up the bodies now. He's become a little unhinged. I think this thing with Gray finally sent him over the edge. And this all leads to this wonderful conclusion that we have in this film. And Luton does this so well in many of his films. Even the ones I don't like, he has this buildup at the end. You get about 15, 10 minutes within the ending, and you can tell something's coming. You can tell some big set piece is going to build up. Let's get to that ending and what's going on. He somehow convinced Fetz to go help him dig up this body. They're in this pub of some sort, and they see this funeral procession come in, so they know there's a body there, and it's supposed to be of this woman. So they go out, and they're in a carriage, and it's at night, and it's raining, and is there anyone better at this era of putting these atmospheric scenes together? Maybe there is, but for my money, I'll take Luton, because not only does he do these great, tense endings, is he has a lot of build-up in the atmosphere, and everything surrounding, and I think that's the key strength of Luton is the atmosphere and the build-up and the backstory. It's all these things around the film, so it lets the characters be the characters in a believable world. Well, they dig up this body. They're digging it up in the rain. They get it back in the carriage, but it's got to sit between them, and the whole time he starts hearing Gray's voice, and it's driving him insane, and he has to look at this body, and he 
stops the carriage and he looks back at the body and Fetz gets out and he sees that it's Gray's face and the body flops over on him and he's freaking out and he takes off and leaves Fetz behind and he's just hearing Gray talk to him and he's got this body all over him and he just can't escape. He's just going insane here and the carriage just crashes. He crashes the carriage and he dies. It's revealed afterwards that the body actually was the woman that they thought they were digging up and it wasn't Gray. But this gives you a good inclination earlier from when we were talking about when Gray kept repeating, you'll never get rid of me, Toddy. Was he really talking about, you're never going to kill me? You're never going to get me out of the picture? Or was he saying, you're never going to get me out of your head? I'm always going to be there. You're always going to have this looming over you. I'm never going away. And I think that's really what was meant. At this point, that is the ending. That is all the film. But there's also a little silver lining where we get before this just a little moment of happiness. Like we said, Dr. McFarlane had done the surgery on Georgina, who is the little girl, Georgina Marsh. And again, we had that at the beginning where when Karloff was saying that, look for my horse, it'll say hi to you. So she goes up on this overpass. Her mom takes her up on this overpass every day in her wheelchair and she looks for this horse, and she hears for this horse, and Fetz has, we've seen Fetz there before, holding her up to see, and it wasn't the right horse at that point. But we do get this scene before the conclusion, and this is why Fetz goes to see McFarlane in the first place, because they think their surgery has failed, she's not walking or anything like that. Well, Fetz is talking with Mrs. Marsh, and Georgina is hearing a horse, and she's trying to get their attention to pick her up and go see it. Well, she gets up out of the chair herself and goes and walks and sees it, and they realize that she is healed, the surgery worked. So that was what pushed Fetz to come back and to go see McFarlane to tell him about the surgery being a success. So we do get that little happy moment, even though it is in the background and it's a very small part of the film. Even though it's really the driving action of what's going on, that's why they're asking Gray for more cadavers. That's why Fetz gets involved in this whole thing in the first place. But it's a nice little happy moment in this otherwise pretty bleak film about some pretty scummy characters. When we do finally get the ending, we get this quote superimposed over the final scene. That's going to be a running theme on this film, is this quote either before or after or both in these films. I don't know what the turn is here. Is this is something um, that Luton wanted to try out? If it's something that's becoming more popular or if it's something coming down from RKO? I couldn't imagine it being the latter, but maybe it is. But we will see that going forward. So the Body Snatcher, all in all, I think I had mentioned before that this was my second favorite Val Luton film. I think it's gone down a little bit, not because of the quality of the film, but because on this viewing, something else jumped up for me. It is such a good film. Like I said, Karlov gives an outstanding performance here, maybe the best of his career. This world is so intriguing and believable in the background about the real-life murders that were going on. And yes, this was based on a short story, but I think they did an excellent job of bringing it over to film, and they picked the right characters for it. I think the characters fit exactly. Fetz fits his character exactly. You've got McFarlane, who is playing this stuffy, kind of arrogant man, and he plays it so well, and Gray plays this, this character that he plays very well. Every dimension of it, Karloff delivers on. So I think this is one of those must-watches for Luton. I'd say it's a high recommend, really. I love all Luton films, but this is in my top three of Luton films. And I think Karloff is just making the films better as we go on. All right, let's go on to Isle of the Dead. We gotta get moving here. I had alluded to something earlier on Isle of the Dead that there was a little bit 
of weirdness going on with this and the body snatcher. Let's go ahead and get into that. First off, I'll say that Isle of the Dead suffered from a lot of cuts, and Luton was ultimately very upset by the final product. We've seen this before. We've seen cuts gone awry in Luton films. I don't think it usually detracts from the movies. I think there are some out there that it's definitely detracted from, and you can tell that it's kind of choppy. I don't necessarily think it did that much to Isle of the Dead. Maybe something like Curse of the Cat People or The Seventh Victim, you can feel it a little bit more. But Isle of the Dead was next in line. We had Mademoiselle Fifi and Youth Runs Wild, his little foray into other genres, and Jack Gross was, again, announcing that Karloff had come on to do two pictures, and Luton was told this would be his last horror film. But they lied. They lied to him. This was not going to be his last horror film. I don't think they ever planned for it to be his last horror film. Now, this was... Directed again by Mark Robeson, written by frequent collaborator Ardell Ray, with some edits from Luton. Luton did not take credit on the screenplay. He did on Bedlam, coming up. But Isle of the Dead was supposed to be before The Body Snatcher, so it makes sense that he wrote The Body Snatcher and Bedlam and wanted to put his pseudonym down as a writing credit on those two because they were back-to-back as far as the scripts go. Now, this was set against the backdrop of the Balkan Wars in 1912 in Greece, which is a very, I guess I want to say it's a period of turmoil for Greece and is going to be a period of turmoil for the whole world coming up. This is kind of that lead-in to World War I. This is where everything kind of kicked off and set the events of World War I into motion. If you know nothing about the Balkan Wars, I'll go into them briefly here. It was just a series of two wars that were fought between The first one was like this alliance called the Balkan League, and they were going against the Ottoman Empire. And then in the second war, it was Bulgaria who had broken off away from the alliance, and they were going against some other Balkan countries, including the Ottoman Empire and Serbia and Greece, of course. The Balkans, all you need to know about that is that it's been a power keg, and it's a constant area of fighting and turmoil throughout history. That's the setting for this movie. That's what we're set against. The script was based off the painting Isle of the Dead by Arnold Bocklin, who was a Swiss painter. And here we are. We've done it, everyone. We've gone from short story adaptation to a magazine article adaptation. Here's a script based on a painting. We have reached the pinnacle. There is no way to go but down from here. In all seriousness, this painting is pretty good. It's a pretty amazing painting. I could definitely see how it could inspire like a setting or an idea. I just think it's funny that I see that a script was based on this painting. Again, I don't mean to make light of the painting because I really do like the painting, but it's just so funny that they see this painting and they're like, ah, there's my next idea. And it's even a little weirder when you take into account that this film was referred to as Camilla throughout production. So it wasn't even called Isle of the Dead. It was called Camilla. This film began shooting in July of 1944, and it was supposed to come out before The Body Snatcher, like I said. After about two weeks of shooting, though, Karloff had to have back surgery, and filming was put on hold. Filming didn't end up being completed until December of 1944, when they were able to reconvene. Of course, RKO is not going to let Val Luton sit around. They don't want to waste any time. So they had Karloff film The Body Snatcher as soon as he was healed up, while they were still waiting for the cast of Isle of the Dead to reassemble. So that's where we get 
Body Snatcher coming out before Isle of the Dead because it was bumped up due to Karloff's injury first and then not being able to reassemble the cast in a timely manner. We don't know much about the Body Snatcher budget, but this film had a budget of 246000 It seems like maybe Luton got a little bigger of a budget because Karloff was in the movie, and I'm sure this drawn-out production didn't help either. In the end of the day, once this premiered, which it premiered in New York City again on September 7th, 1945, it ended up grossing around 383000 at the box office, which only resulted in a 13000 profit in its initial run. A far cry from Karloff's other films and what we saw at the beginning of this with films like Cat People. And one last interesting piece on this rocky production the film had is that it was said to have a very troubled production. I couldn't get much more into details or facts on that, but there was at one point the original main character was a female character known as Catherine, and Catherine's character was cut out of the script entirely. So you know something's going on when you have your main character, your main female protagonist, completely cut out of the film. Let's go ahead and set up a synopsis. I'm going to, again, avoid, I'm seeing here on this tagline that there's another spoiler for what happens in the movie. What were they thinking at the time? No, people just did not care about spoilers back then, really. It was just all about getting butts in the seat to the movie theater. But let's give that synopsis. On a Greek island during the 1912 war, several people are trapped by quarantine for the plague. If that isn't enough worry, one of the people, a superstitious old peasant, suspects a young woman of being a vampiric demon. Problem number one with that. Which war? I I don't know. Maybe people were more savvy to it in the time, but I can't imagine America being in their period of isolation from the rest of the world. We're following the Balkan Wars. I don't know. I wasn't alive at that time. I wasn't around at that time. But maybe detail which war it is. Just say something. I don't know. This is kind of right up my alley because it has a lot about Greek mythology, which I am very fascinated in. It has the backdrop of a war, and I am very fascinated in the history of conflicts and wars. And we get a message at the beginning, like I was saying we would get. And this message is saying, it's giving a little background on Greece. And I think this is a great use of a title card quote or title card message, really. And it's saying, due to the constant conquest and oppression of the people of Greece have let their legends denigrate and let superstition take its place. And the legend of the Vorvalaka was alive in the minds of peasants during the War of 1912. So this is setting up, and it's going to be a constant theme, the people of Greece have fallen on hard times, and instead of showing reverie for their former gods and goddesses in the pantheon of the Greek belief system, the Greek mythology, they're now falling into that similar setting of what Eastern Europe was with a lot of superstition, and we've got this vampiric superstition that's coming along. You have to remember, Greece is in a transition period here, is what it seems like, and Luton lets us know that. Right off the bat, this is a very different film. It's set initially against this wartime background, and we've got military personnel, and we're not really seeing that in other films. We're seeing everyday people. We do get the everyday people, though. The other reason why this film is so different is the structure and the premise of it and the whole plot and what happens. It's basically like this murder mystery whodunit set up without being a murder mystery whodunit. It's this classical get 10 characters in a mansion and they're being offed one by one. 
Now, the mystery is a little bit different here. It's a little more of a supernatural versus disease thing, but we'll get into that. Karkloff is very intimidating. He plays General Ferades, and they call him the Watchdog. That's what everyone calls him, and he has this reputation of being this intimidating man. When this film opens, we see him forcing a man to shoot himself because his men, one of his regiments of men, were late to the front or late to the battle, and he's making this officer take the blame for that and go out and shoot himself. And that is crazy. That lets you know right about this general from moment one of what he is. And that's why I find it hard to show sympathy for him later on. We get this setup here that's going to foreshadow everything like we do in most Val Luton films, where we've got soldiers carrying these masses of bodies to bury, and the general has to explain that they had cases of the plague among their soldiers, and they can't wait. They have to go and take these bodies and dispose of them immediately because they do not want a chance of the plague spreading. Well, this man is Oliver, and he's a news correspondent, and... He's going to go to the general because he feels like he offended him when talking about his wife, and they're going to go visit his wife's grave that night. So they have to take a rowboat and get to this island. And that's the crux for this whole story. That's what starts it off, is they're going to go to the general's wife's tomb. We get throughout a lot of nods and mentions to Greek mythological figures, and this gives us the divide between what the new Greece has become and the history of and heritage of the Greeks. There's clearly a struggle with many characters in the film between the past and abandoning it for the future, and much of this I feel is brought on by the hardships that Greece is facing around this time. Well, when they finally get to the crypt, uh, the wife's body's missing, but they hear some singing, and this scene is another classic Val Luton scene. It's set at night, they're in this graveyard or crypt, and they're going up this stone architecture, you know, they're ascending these stairs trying to find this singing, leads him to a house and an archaeologist answers the door and informs them that there were grave robbers who were poor and long ago they went and robbed these graves because they needed money. The archaeologist is kind of bummed out about that because he wanted to study all these ancient things that were buried with these people but he understands why it's going on. The owner of the house is Madame Kira and she explains that they burned the bodies and there was an evil one among them. General Freides says that that's nonsense, and in modern Greece, they don't believe in such things. Again, we've got the clear divide here. We've got Kira, who is very superstitious and old school, and adopting that type of thinking. And we've got the general, who is black and white. This is a modern society. We don't believe in such things. All that to get to where we are and to set up the real meat of this film. They ask the general and Oliver to stay because... It's dark out there, and there's already a ton of people staying in this. I don't know if this is like a boarding house or something similar, but we have all of these different people in this house from different backgrounds. It's almost like a Gilligan's Island situation where we've just got all these different characters from different walks of life thrown together. They're all staying here, and they'll soon be trapped there. Let's go ahead and get into that. The characters we have here is Albrecht, who is the archaeologist, Kira, who is the superstitious older lady who owns the house. We have the St. Aubyn's who are comprised of Mr. St. Aubin and Mrs. St. Aubin, and Mrs. St. Aubin's caretaker, Thea. Then we lastly have Mr. Robbins, who is this British man who just wants to go home. He appears drunk when we're introduced to him, and he just goes up to bed. But we'd find out maybe that wasn't the case, and then later we will get an army doctor as well. 
Now, right off the bat, there's this beautiful scene at night. Thea is going to go get medicine for Mrs. St. Aubin. The women all sleep in one room, and Dr. St. Aubin is in another room. So she's going to go get medicine for Mrs. St. Aubin, and it's dark. And she's got this candle, but it blows out. Way there, we get nothing. She just gets the medicine and goes. On the way back, General Ferides is waiting for her and kind of ambushes her and just steps out of these dark shadows. And he's confronting her and... You can tell that her behavior towards him, she already made a comment earlier on and refused to serve him anything to drink. And you can tell that she's not a fan of him just based on his reputation, which I don't I don't blame her. But this whole scene is just set up so beautifully from the candle blowing out to her creeping along the dark and running into the general. Again, another classic Val Luton scene. His scenes are so memorable and so well bathed in the shadows and... I just have sounded like a broken record, I'm sure, at this point, but I can't get enough of them. In the morning, like I said, we find out Mr. Robbins has died, and the general fears immediately that it's the plague, and he quarantines the house. So here we are. We're all trapped in the house. And he calls on an army doctor to come and oversee things. Well, this doesn't go well with the residents. They wanted to leave. They wanted to get out of there. They don't want to stay here any longer. But they could be stuck there for a long time. And the doctor is giving them all these orders about no contact and anything like that, something we're very familiar with today, but he's just giving this long list of things. Albrecht gets into this whole debate with the general and the doctor about the superstition versus the science, essentially. He doesn't have really a horse in this race as far as being, I think he's from Switzerland. He doesn't have any reverence for the old gods of Greece or anything like that, but He's saying that the Vorvalica legend makes just as much sense to him as the talk of how this plague spreads and the whole science behind this plague. And he makes a bet. He tries to make a bet with the doctor, but essentially makes the bet with the general that he's going to go pray to Hermes for protection and the general can follow the science and they'll see who dies first which one will die you know who's gonna live and it's a really cool moment because he tricks after the doctor has said no contact he tricks the general into touching his hand and he's just basically like oh gotcha so it's very cool it's a very fun scene but we do get some background there too about the legend of the vorvalica and how it similarly to the plague drains people of their life and makes them act in weird ways and it's just this evil spirit inhabiting a body that's going around in basically like a vampiric-type legend. The next to die is Mr. St. Aubin, which is unfortunate, and Thea, I think, knew ahead of time that something was going on with him. He fears that he has the plague. Now, Mrs. St. Aubin comes in and goes into a complete tirade, claiming he's not dead. She seems like she's gone out of her mind, which you can understand in this situation, but we learn there's a reason for this. She goes and talks to the doctor, and the reason is that she has this condition where she will pass out and appear to be dead, and she's always had this fear of being buried alive. So we kind of get where she's coming from, why she has this reaction. She doesn't want to be buried alive. She's so scared of it, and she tells the doctor in hopes that he would make sure this doesn't happen. So we've got that moment where she's putting everything out there, but this is, again, foreshadowing what we're going to see because guess who comes down with the sickness next? It's the doctor. And he had assured her he would take every precaution if something happened to her. Well, now the person who knows about that, the only person who knows about that, is dead. And that's the first important plot development that comes out of the doctor's death. 
is we now have this foreshadow that Mrs. St. Aubin has this condition and no one else knows about it. The second piece is this kind of discredits the science, right? The doctor's the one there telling you what to do and how to keep out of contact with the plague and how to best save yourself, and he died. So what is everyone to think now? Are they to fall back on the superstitions? Yeah, it's kind of going to drive people a little crazy, and both of these things are the catalyst for what comes forward in the film. Without these two pieces that come from the doctor's death, we have nothing. We get a scene where the general, who was all sure of himself initially about superstitions aren't real, all this stuff isn't real, well, he's out at the shrine to Hermes, and he's praying out there, and it seems a little hypocritical. Kira has caught him out there at the shrine, and she starts putting these ideas in his head. And he's starting to think that maybe Thea is the Volvolica, and he's starting to fully believe in this. And we don't know if this is coming from the—it's probably coming from a mixture of events of what's happened so far, and maybe he's sick already, and it's messing with his mind. I don't know. But he— confronts Thea and gives her this whole message about she wakes up every morning being full of life while Miss St. Aubin grows paler every day, and he tries to convince Thea that she is this Vorvalica and is sucking the life out of Mrs. St. Aubin unbeknownst to her. He almost convinces her, but I think Mrs. St. Aubin really assures her that she's been sick long before and she is supposed to get worse. That's how this disease works. It's not like someone is sucking the life out of her kind of reassures Thea. Well, at this point, Thea and Oliver have become romantically involved, and they're kissing, and we get this creepy general creeping up on them and saying, you can't escape from me anywhere on the island. I will find you, and if I find out you are the Vorvalica, I will destroy you, is what he's saying. And it's very creepy. He's creeping up on them, and he makes this resolute statement that if he finds out she's the Vorvalica, he's going to kill her. It's very scary, and it puts everyone on edge here, or everyone who's left anyway. Oliver says, okay, I'm taking Thea off the island in the morning. She clearly isn't safe here. I don't care about your disease anymore. I don't care about your plague. I'm taking her away. Well, find out that the general destroys the boat in the middle of the night. So that plans out. Later on, Mrs. St. Aubin falls ill and tries to tell Thea something, but she faints before she can. Thea doesn't know what to do. She's torn. She's thinking she is the Vorvalica, and she locks herself in this room with Mrs. St. Aubin. And we get Kira outside the door creepily whispering and making her feel guilty and trying to make her believe that she is the Vorvalica. We know, due to foreshadowing, that this probably isn't the case. We know pretty much that Mrs. St. Aubin isn't dead, But what we don't know is how it's going to play out, and boy, does it play out. We even see her twitch a little bit while she's lying there in bed. So we know that she's not really dead. We still get a scene where they're carrying her in a coffin down to the crypt. After that, there's just this terrified scream coming out of the coffin. We just get this close-up on the coffin, and we hear this scream and pounding in the coffin. It's very unsettling because there's nothing else going on. It's just her in this coffin pounding and screaming and trying to get out. Very unsettling. Kira continues to encourage the general, even though even though he's falling ill. She's saying, oh, you're leaving me here to deal with Thea, with the Vorvalica. And he says, no, I will take care of it. And she also convinces him that Mrs. St. Aubin is rising from the dead. And this happens against the backdrop of her trying to break out of the coffin. So Kira, not a good influence on this film. 
Now next, again, we get one of these great Luton conclusions, where Thea walks outside to get some air. It's just her and Albrecht and Oliver sitting down there, kind of trying to stay together. But Thea walks outside to get some air because they hear the general, and they don't want her in that path. And we get all this wind, and we see shadows of trees blowing, and there's all of these noises that are going on in the night, and it's so beautiful, and I love this scene. It just takes you to that place immediately. You feel like you're there. And as she walks off screen, because she's following these noises she's hearing, she walks off in one direction, and then we get the back of Mrs. St. Aubin walking towards the screen, and the wind's blowing this gown that she has on. I love all of the imagery in the last 10 minutes of this film. You've got the island topography, you've got all these stone buildings and these staircases, and the breeze in the night setting, and it all just kind of melds together perfectly. And it's very gothic horror. This is very much a gothic horror film, I think. It has all of those influences in it, and it has all of those pieces, and this scene just kind of drives it home. Thea ends up in the tomb, and we see the open coffin. And it's very dark in there, and there's shadows, and she sees Mrs. St. Aubin, who screams, and then Thea runs away, so it's like she doesn't even know who she is. And Thea runs to find Oliver. I think that being buried alive in the coffin kind of made her worst fears come true, and she's kind of been driven a little mad by what's going on. I mean, we all go a little mad sometimes. We see Mrs. St. Aubin creep in past the sleeping Albrecht who is sitting at a desk, and she picks up this trident that's on the desk that they were just explaining earlier that this was used by Poseidon. And so we're always tying in that Greek mythology or that Greek superstition into this. Well, she uses that trident to go up and kill Kira, and this is maybe, I think this is the first time we've seen blood in a Val Luton film on screen. I can't recall seeing it over this month-long journey I've been on here. I think this is the first time we do see visible blood. Well, Thea, this happens, and Thea goes back to the room where the women stay and lays down in the bed, and the general creeps in the room and finds Kira dead and just assumes it's Thea, who is the Vorvalica, and he lunges for her. And again, he's sick, he's stumbling, he's not in his right condition, and he reaches to lunge for her, but Mrs. St. Aubin comes out of the shadows and stabs him. And then she runs off and jumps off of a balcony and screams as she falls to her death. And the general dies, and the last line spoken in the film really implies that the general was really a tragic character, and he was just trying to protect these people. And I get that, I see that, but the things the general has done, it just... I don't know if I agree with that, and I don't know if I agree with making him any kind of sympathetic character or this protector character. Maybe the scenes that were cut told this story? I don't know. He's for sure not a 2D character. I mean, he's got some dimensions to him. But I I don't know if I believe that he's this savior character who is just trying to do the right thing. This whole sequence, though, feels oddly close in setting in tone to what we would get in the 50s and 60s with gothic horror movies. And sure, we've gotten plenty of gothic horror movies before, but this is Luton's first foray into that gothic type of style, and I love it. In conclusion, I turned around on this film pretty mightily. I think I'm going from four, I would call this maybe like a one-time watch, to now I'm going all the way up to a high recommend. And as far as I'm concerned, this is my second favorite Val Luton film, and I didn't expect that going in. This was another, like I talked about last episode, of these films that I watched the first time, and it didn't really stick with me. Well, now it's stuck with me, and I really love this film. I know it's not maybe a favorite of everyone's, or it's not high on everyone's list, but that's what's great, right? That's what's great about watching movies, is we can all have our opinions, we can all have our different lists, and there's so many ways to interpret 
films or how films make you feel, and we can all have our own opinion on that. All right, moving on to Bedlam, the last film I'll be covering on this episode. Um, Bedlam was, again, inspired by a painting, except this was a series of paintings. It was inspired by William Hogarth's A Rake's Progress series of paintings, and Hogarth received a writing credit in this film, along with Robeson and Luton, who once again was using the pseudonym Carlos Keith. So once again, we're having a painting serve as inspiration here, except this is a series of paintings. I think there were eight in total. Mark Robeson would return to direct this one. Filming began on July 18th of 1945 and wrapped in late August of 1945. The film was finally released on May 10th of 1946. So Luton got a larger budget for Bedlam and more production time as well. He had a budget coming in of 350000 and unfortunately, the film ended up losing 40000 at the box office in its initial run. So not a success at all. An inflated budget, most likely due to the period piece. I know that just ramps everything up like we talked with Mademoiselle Fifi, and you have to think that one had a $200,000 budget, or roundabouts. This one was amped up a whole lot more and lost a whole lot of money. If you're not familiar with what Bedlam is referring to, The film takes place in St. Mary's Bethlehem Asylum, which was famously known as Bedlam as well, which was a mental health institution, mental health asylum. I'm going to go ahead and get into the synopsis of this one. I don't have a whole lot to say about this film, similar to The Ghost Ship, so let's go ahead and just get into it. London, 1761, St. Mary's of Bethlehem. A sinister madhouse is visited by wealthy people who enjoy watching the patients confined there, as if they were caged animals. Nell Bowen, one of the visitors, is horrified by the deplorable living conditions of the unfortunate inhabitants of this godforsaken place, better known as Bedlam. Again, take issue with that, because Nell Bowen is not disgusted with the treatment of people in this place. Maybe she is at first, but she goes through a whole back and forth about this place, and it really takes some convincing from the Quaker or the stonemason as he's referred to in this film. I don't think he's ever given a name, but really takes him to kind of guide her on the path and following the right path. It takes a while for me to warm up to Bowen in this film. Another title card is put at the beginning of this film, basically telling you it's set in London in 1761, and the people of that time called it the Age of Reason. You can already feel the irony right there from the beginning. I mean, the Age of Reason in this film is going to be about... A mental asylum where the living conditions are terrible. I think that gives you a good look at what this film is, or maybe the tone of the film as we go through. Unlike the previous two period pieces where I liked the setting, didn't really like the setting of this one, did not like the time period. I'm not a huge fan of that time in history in general. Didn't really hit with me like the other two. We get this action at the beginning of the film where who we think is a Patient falls out of an open window trying to escape. Turns out, I don't think he was a patient at all, but was a guest and was a friend of Lord Mortimer, who is this wealthy aristocrat. And Karloff's character, Master Sim, is accused of murdering this man. Now, Sims is another slimy character, just like the rest of Karloff's that he plays in these in this trilogy of films. I guess the general in Isle of the Dead isn't slimy. I wouldn't refer to him as that but not a nice character. One thing that's striking to me is when Sims is trying to apologize to Lord Mortimer, 
he's offering to have a play with his bedlamites, as he calls them, which are the people that live at the asylum, and basically he thinks he controls. So he's going to put on this play to appease the Lord, and everything's going to be great. Well, the play's kind of messed up because we get this man who's been painted to look as a statue, and it's cutting off his oxygen, and he can't breathe. They have this scene where after he's done, you know, he's Sims is forcing him to say these lines and egging him on and pushing him on through all of this. This is maybe where we get some of the thought that Nell is disgusted by the treatment of these patients. Because the boy passes out and Bowen stands up and protests this. And they were busy fighting over what to do with this boy. And Sims turns around and says, we'll throw him in the river and clean him off. And he says, he's talking to Bowen and is going back and forth and protesting and says, the boy is dying. And then a man taps him on the arm and he turns back around and says, this boy is dead. So that seems like a bit of a black humor um, to this film. And I think that becomes a theme going through. I felt that there's a sense of humor through this movie, a sense of lightheartedness thrown in with the absolute deplorable treatment of these patients. That's that's what I took away from it, at least. So maybe similar in tone to The Ghost Ship, and maybe that's why I had a problem with it. I don't know. We also get something else if you needed any other reason to hate Sims. When he's taking Nell through a tour of the asylum, and she's basically a jester to Lord Mortimer. So she's there to make him laugh, and she has this parrot that does an act with her. But she's going around and getting a tour from Sims, He's telling her about the different ways he treats his patients and how they're classified. He said, if they're dogs, he beats them. If they're pigs, he lets them live in their filth. If they're tigers, he cages them. And then he gets to this woman who is kind of catatonic, just staring into space, and he calls her Dove. And Bowen cuts him off before we can hear whatever filth he's about to spew out of his mouth, which I was more than happy to get that because I don't know what he was going to say there but once again just like the body snatcher he is a hundred percent sleaze in this movie now I liked Nell to an extent in the beginning but then she starts talking about how the bedlamites are animals and disgusting at that point I'm like is there someone I'm supposed to like in this movie because I don't really like the Quaker stonemason. I mean, he's okay. He's a likable character. He does good things. Well, let's back that up. He does good things. He's a righteous character for sure. Is he a character that I would identify with or that I like? I don't know. He's kind of just there. So I think that's one of the biggest problems is I just didn't hit with any of the characters here. Bowen has this plan that she brings up to Lord Mortimer to rehabilitate Bedlam and to change everything up and she's going to get the Lord to pay for all this, but I don't think he's thinking about it. And this is where some more humor comes in because Sims comes in and fools Lord Mortimer. He's like, well, do you know all this cost money and that's going to cost you precisely this much in taxes? And can you live without that amount in taxes? And he just starts thinking about it and he's like, oh, well, I guess I can't live without that much in taxes. So it's a very striking scene, very comedic, I think. It ends up with Lord Mortimer tossing Nell out on the street so she's got nothing but this parrot and they kind of have this argument and fight over this parrot I think the parrot knows something or would repeat something that could blackmail the lord so Sims tricks him into this whole thing about having her committed he doesn't want to do it at first and then does it there's another scene where 
Nell comes in and they offer her some money to give the parrot back over. And she puts the money on bread and eats it. Again, with the comedy going through this. And makes sense since she's sort of a jester. Well, this is the thing that ultimately puts her in Bedlam herself. Because she has to go in front of this commission of lunacy. Yes, a commission of lunacy. Which is kind of ridiculous. Especially the way they conduct their trial, which is nonsensical and clearly is just rigged by Sims. But I don't think it's that out of touch with what was going on in the period. I don't know a whole lot about that period of time. But I could see something like that where people were just committed for personal reasons of powerful people. I could definitely see it. So the stonemason who has befriended Nell here sneaks into the asylum and is trying to talk to her. And yeah, she was big talk about helping these patients. But when she's in there with them, she's referring to them as animals and filthy. And the stonemason is trying to point her out in the right direction. He's almost like her conscience in this film. Maybe he's not real. I mean, other characters do interact with him, but maybe he's a surrogate for her conscience. And maybe he's there to guide her on the right path. I don't know. I don't know. I do like the scene um, later on when she's playing cards with some of the patients who refer to themselves as the people of the pillar. And they think they are the wisest and... They invite her to play cards, and they're kind of faking it with their money and everything. They're just pretending like they're putting money in, and I like that scene, but again, very lighthearted. Nell does get pushed to help the inmates, and she really does become this mother figure to the inmates. She helps them. She changes their bedding. She helps feed the ones who can't feed themselves, and she's completely turned around Bedlam from the inside. Well, Sims doesn't like this, and he has this remedy that he has given others and threatens to give it to her, and it's implied that this is just going to make her lose her senses completely. We get a nice little turn here at the ending, which the ending did pick it up a little bit for me. What happens is the inmates are loyal to Bowen. She has made several friends in here, and they turn on Sims, and they give him his own trial, which is pretty cool and pretty good justice. Nell is able to escape, and she goes to the Quaker, and they talk, and he basically convinces her, yeah, we can't just leave Sims there to be killed by the inmates. Let's go grab some people and get over there. By the time they get over there, the inmates had walled up Sims, cask of Amontillado style. I think he's kind of knocked out at first, but he's definitely alive when they're walling him in this area. And they only have access to this stuff because there were some stonemasons there before working on that part of the asylum and we see we do see that earlier so it's set up i really like that you know it's the dove that ends up stabbing him and kind of makes him go unconscious and that's some good justice there i'm sure there could have been some other subplot to that but what other motive do they really need once they get there and they're looking around now and the quaker quickly figure out what happened they see the fresh cement on the wall and they know that sims is in there and the people that they're with are trying to look for sims and find him and they said the inmates should be punished. Once they walk away, Nell's giving the Quaker this look as like, you can't tell them, you can't tell them, I can't have these people being punished or put any more hardship. It looks like the Quaker's visibly torn, but here we're kind of shown how much she's changed because she just doesn't want to put any more hardships on these people. She doesn't want to get them in trouble anymore, even if it's the sake of a man's life or hiding a body. Well, the Quaker actually agrees with her, and it seems like he was just keeping her in suspense, and he didn't really plan to turn them in the whole time. And he didn't want to burden those in Bedlam himself. 
So then after the film's over, we get this card on how the reform went along in England to remedy some of these treatments of the patients. So again, I went through that very quickly. This isn't a film that really struck me. I don't feel like there was a lot of substance there. It was cool to highlight the conditions of what was going on in asylums at the time and just the disgusting treatment of these people, but the film just never managed to grab me fully. If I'm given a recommendation on this one, I think it is worth a one-time watch, especially if you're trying to complete that Luton filmography, but I wouldn't, I mean, it's a lower recommendation, especially for horror fans. There's really cool stuff that happens at the end, but like the ghost ship, I would say get around to this one probably near the end of your watches. Okay, that does it for the films we were covering on Luton. At this point, I'm going to go into a wrap-up of what happened after Luton had left RKO and some things that happened within the film industry at that time. And then we'll do a little fun list at the end of this. So let's move on here. After Bedlam, Luton had several movie ideas rejected by RKO. Hollywood was on the brink of collapse as far as what it was at the time, and he was just having a hard time getting anything put into production. When Charles Kerner passed away in 1946, Luton was let go by RKO as they restructured a lot of their management and teams to fit a new style. Um, Luton suffered his first heart attack at age 42, so at this point, he was unemployed and in bad health after this heart attack. While he was unemployed, he rewrote an unused script that one of the actresses at Paramount really liked. So in exchange for that script, he was promised employment through 1948. So he's got a little bit of a contract situation. He's at least going to be able to work and get paid. Although at Paramount, he had about the same experience. Several movies he brought to concept, and they were all dismissed. He only ended up producing one released film in his time there, which was a romance drama film called My Own True Love, and that ended up being released in 1949 after he had left Paramount. After Paramount, he returned to MGM where his career had started. He was once again only able to produce one film in the time he was at MGM, and that was the 1950 romantic comedy Please Believe Me, which starred Deborah Kerr. Most horror fans would know her as the star of The Innocents. So that's cool that he did that, but again, romantic comedy I don't think is really Val Luton's strong point, and that's the situation he was put in at MGM. At this point, things started to look up briefly. He got a call from Robert Wise and Mark Robeson, and he planned to go independent and form a new company with them, giving him back some of his freedom. But they ended up having an argument about what film to produce first, and Luton was kicked out of this group. It's really sad to see this. These are two people that he had given their start, in the directing at least, and he had them on his team, and they were friends, and he was loyal to them, and they just decided to move on without him. And Luton had been in the business for a long time at that point, and maybe he was, I don't know, maybe he was running out of ideas, and maybe he was older, but that's no reason to just cast your friend aside like that. I mean, I know you got to do what's best for the business, but I'm sure this just devastated him and just killed him inside. It's said that Wise had actually reached out to Luton sometime before his death, and the two were able to make amends, which is nice to hear, but he and Robeson would never make up, and I don't think he would ever forgive Mark Robeson. He would take that to his grave. 
So Luton sat at home and was working on an American Revolutionary War script about the battles at Fort Ticonderoga. Um, Universal came in and made him an offer on the screenplay, but they didn't end up using it. But they still brought him in to do something else. Instead, he was brought in to produce Apache Drums, which we ended up releasing in 1951. Now, I didn't get a chance to see Apache Drums. I really wanted to see this movie. I've heard it's more like the early RKO era of Luton films. And I heard it has some really cool shadow effects and things like that. So I really do want to see that one. I know his son, Val E. Luton, claimed that his father was incredibly excited about working in color for the first time. Apache Drums is a Western, and I do like Westerns. So at some point, I am going to get this checked out. I just didn't have time to watch it before the show. Just be warned, it's not horror. It is a Western. But apparently, again, it has that feel of older Val Luton RKO films. So that was it at Universal. He got an offer to be an assistant producer at Columbia for a series of films. So he resigned and he began working on a film titled My Six Convicts, which doesn't sound exciting to me, but at least he has some work and some seemingly steady work. However, um, during production of My Six Convicts, Luton suffered from gallstone issues and ended up having two more heart attacks he would pass away on March 14th, 1951, at the age of 46. So, unfortunately, Val Luton did not get the Legends exit that he so deserved. I mean, it seemed for the past four or five years of his life, he was just bouncing around from places. He didn't have steady employment. He was just kind of going with things, trying to do whatever he could to make a living. He had health problems, which were probably brought on a lot by the stress that was put on him throughout his career at RKO, and he broke his back to put out some amazing films for RKO, and don't really think he still gets the recognition he deserves to this day. Let's try to pivot to a different piece of discussion about what's going on in the industry at the time. I wanted to cover a little bit, since we're here, of the collapse of the golden age of Hollywood. To set that up, uh, I think I've talked about this briefly before as we went through, but the studio system was basically a system of eight major studios. You had the five major studios that owned theater chains and were bigger than the other three, which would have been 20th Century Fox, MGM, Paramount, Warner Brothers, and RKO. And then you had what were referred to as the Little Three. Again, they did not own any movie theater chains for distribution, so they were reliant on other movie theater chains. Those three were Universal, Columbia, and United Artists. Under the studios were contracted actors and creative teams that typically never left the studio they were employed by. They just worked from film to film within the same studio. Again, the major five all owned theater chains, and they would... Well, I'm saying theater chains, but just theaters. There weren't really the chains back then, but just chains of theaters. And they would mainly show their own films. They would book a full year of their films in theaters through block booking, is what it was called. So they could only be showing their films at a particular theater. That's why we saw these RKO films open in New York City all the time. The decline in the studio system was led by two main factors. The rise of TV, which would be a major competitor, and the antitrust laws that would come down the pipe to stop these theaters from creating monopolies. Antitrust was brought up in the late 30s. A uh, compromise was reached in 1940 to eliminate theater blind buying and limit block booking to only five films at a time. 
So they were hoping that this would give the theaters more autonomy to choose which films they were showing, and they wouldn't have to show films from the same studio. In 1942, a union of independent producers formed a union and sued Paramount for their monopoly over the Detroit Theater District. These were the first salvos thrown in this antitrust war. Studios did nothing they were asked to and pretty much received no consequences until after the war. They were too busy doing other things to enforce these theater issues that were going on. There were much bigger problems going on in the world. But once the war ended, all eight majors were under fire for monopolization under the Sherman Antitrust Act. Now, the Supreme Court ruled that they were, in fact, in violation of antitrust act, of the Antitrust Act. This led to a widespread change across the industry that could still be felt to this day. By 1949, all major studios had given up their theater ownership. So no more of this owning a theater, booking your movies in these theaters in this area. I mean, think about that if you're in say it was Paramount in the Detroit area, and you could only see Paramount films. Think about that from today's point of view. I'm sure it was different back then, but you could have areas of the country that just didn't know about a film, I'm assuming that would happen. And that's crazy. That's crazy to think about. They also started releasing actors and other staff from their contracts. This is kind of what we saw happen with Val Luton. One, based on Charles Kerner passing away, and two, probably this stuff happening in the industry were leading to changes within RKO. But they did this as well as a mean to cut cost because they didn't know what was coming. They didn't know what the future held. This led to studios losing their unique identities as a new film from a studio could have completely different creative team and a cast than the next. Before in this time, I mean, we've got Robeson and Wise and Jacques Turner directing these RKO films. Val Luton's producing them. They're using some of the same actors here and there. And that's what you would see. If you saw an RKO film, it would feel like an RKO film. If you saw a Fox film, it would feel like a Fox film. And there are only so many actors that were within the company and that were contracted by the company. So that's what you got. And you lost a lot of that, for better or for worse. I mean, there's good things and bad things about that. I like that the actors and directors and stuff have their freedoms. But again, they got solid paychecks. And not just for the big people. It was everyone had their contracts and they got paid. And again, if you saw an RKO film, you had a little bit of an idea of what you were going to see. In order to fight against these losses in TV studios, they started producing less films, but on bigger budgets, creating spectacles that you could only see on the big screen. And we still see that today, right? A lot of the times we get these smaller films and they're released on VOD today. And they're released limited in theaters. They're not going to take up a lot of space. What we do see are these huge blockbusters that are meant to bring in hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. That is the prevailing mindset that has stayed with the industry probably since the 50s. I mean, you got to think that's scary at the time. You've got this new medium. People no longer have to leave their homes to go to a movie theater. That was the only form of seeing stuff like this was at a movie theater before television. And it would take a long time for TV to get off the ground, but you can see where that's going to eat into their profits, or they're going to think that's eating into their profits. You see it today with all these TV shows that are going on. The movies have to try to compete somehow. So we give you this big spectacle that you don't want to watch at home. Do you want to watch Godzilla vs. Kong at home? Do you want to watch these big spectacle films at home, or do you want to see them beautifully on a big screen in a theater environment? And that's the cards that they played. That's the route that they went down. Less films, bigger budgets, try to get people in based on the spectacle, 
I think you see that with a bunch of science fiction films in the 50s. You see that with a bunch of sword and sandal epics in the 50s and 60s. And you see that with westerns. And you're getting these big, larger-than-life films. You're not seeing these small, little set horror films. And that's probably a little bit of the reason why Luton was struggling to find work, too. His last film he worked on, Apache Drums, is this big western film. It's not this subtle, nuanced horror film. It's not a noir film, as I think we see noir films going downhill as well in the 50s is not as many of them coming out it just made it harder for some of those classical genres to survive in the theaters at least for a little bit i mean we really wouldn't get that boom again until we get into the independent movement of horror in the 70s which just exploded and then on one hand you know you had the big studios trying to capture this magic with big actors and you had the independent guys going out there and putting their movies in drive-ins and it's a whole thing and we'll get to that at some point but not today The other way that studios were trying to make some money were selling their libraries to TV. They could sell rights to their movies to air on TV, and that gave the TV channel something to put on. I mean, you're not going to be able to fill a whole lot of time at that point. There's not a lot of options. So that was another way they could make money. RKO going out of business is actually what allowed the rise of horror host on TV. Their whole libraries were given up to TV, and there's a lot of science fiction and B-movies and horror movies in there. And these horror hosts or these movie hosts could play them. You can thank RKO for that. To give a little background on what happened with RKO, it was taken over by Howard Hughes in 1948, who was a famous industrialist. And under his tenure, the company was in a period of decline, and it was kind of in disarray. Finally, in 1955, it was sold off to General Tire and Rubber Company. And in 1959, RKO Pictures would be defunct as we know it. It would morph into RKO General, which focused more on radio programs and some TV stations that were non-network. So under this, you would get a lot of the RKO films that would be shown on these networks and on TV stations. A lot of the classic RKO films were shown here. So that's how we get the whole television angle. But RKO is definitely the loser in the end of the golden age of Hollywood. It's the studio that gets hit the hardest at the end of the day. I personally love the RKO opening that we see in front of all their films. And I miss that dearly because that is something that is etched and ingrained in me from seeing RKO films from a young age. And I really do lament the fact that we don't really see that anymore. So that's it. I just wanted to get into a little bit of the collapse of the golden age of Hollywood and what that meant to horror as a whole. And it meant a little bit of a drought in the United States, at least from Hollywood. Val's story is just so sad. I look at him as such a pioneer and an intriguing figure. He unfortunately was always plagued by obstacles, which so many creators are. I'm not saying he's by himself, he's on an island, he got unfair treatment, but he didn't have a lot of breaks go his way. He was cast out too soon, and he left this world way too soon. I chose him for these introductory episodes because I feel he just gets much less recognition than many of the people who worked on Universal Films and um, Universal Monster Films specifically, and these monsters tend to overshadow most everything else from horror fans from the golden age of Hollywood. I just think he was unappreciated in life and underappreciated to this day, really. I just don't see as many people. Maybe Cat People gets a lot of recognition, but when was the last time you heard a podcast discussing the Isle of the Dead or 
the leopard man. There are certainly ones out there that are doing the Lord's work and (laughs) taking on those topics, but I just don't think these are things that are talked about within circles like Frankenstein or Dracula or Bride of Frankenstein or any of that is. But I have just such a love for his films, as you can probably tell as we're going through this. I'm not always going to be this kind on movies, but I just really love Val Luton's films. To wrap this, I wanted to give my ranking of Val Luton films that I watched. I have not seen again Apache Drums. I hope to remedy that in the future. But I'm going to be given a top nine and ranking all these films. You can probably just about tell where they're falling based on listening. But I thought this would be a fun way to end it. And I might be doing these lists at the end of every chapter to kind of give a sense of some of my favorites within the topic. At number nine, no surprise, I have The Ghost Ship. At number eight, I have Bedlam. Again, no surprise. Number seven is The Leopard Man. This one fell quite a bit upon these rewatches, while the other ones tended to rise a little more. Uh, Number six is I Walked with a Zombie. Number five, The Curse of the Cat People. Number four is The Seventh Victim, which I would have never... If you would have told me The Seventh Victim would have been number four and my number two would have been what it was before starting this, would have never believed you. Um, Number three, The Body Snatcher. Absolute classic. Um, Number two, Isle of the Dead. Maybe I'm a little higher on this than everyone else, but... That's okay. I just really loved that film on this second watch. And number one, of course, is Cat People by a mile. In the next chapter, I'm going to be moving on to a new topic. We're going to be talking about Euro horror and the rise of Euro horror specifically. So we're kind of picking up where we left off. Hollywood is falling in the horror category at this time in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But something had to rise up and take its place. And there were some really interesting films coming out of other parts of the world at this time. So this is going to cover horror movies from all across Europe in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and maybe even the 80s. I don't know if we're going to get into that quite yet, but it's going to give a little overview of all that. Next episode is going to be a little different for a couple reasons. First, I won't be doing another creator spotlight, so it'll be more of a broad general topic discussion rather than this all-encompassing focus conversation piece. Secondly, I'm going to have my first ever guest I don't know how often I'll have guests, probably not too often, just because because this is a solo cast, I'm trying to use the time that I have and work on my own schedule within this, but I'm always open to having guests, of course. Uh, The first one is a big one. It's going to be Dave Dr. Shock Becker from Lane of the Creeps, Horror Movie Podcast, DVD Infatuation, and the DVD Infatuation Podcast, The Illustrated Fan, and a whole slew of other podcasts. Dave's been doing it for years, and I'm so happy to have him on the next episode. Also, to celebrate having my first guest, I'm going to be doing a little bit of a giveaway, so keep watching for that. Definitely give some more details on the next episode when we have Dave on. Other than that, you can go ahead and follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. You can reach out by email at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. You can visit the website where all the episodes are hosted, and that is ScreamingThroughTheAges.com. All very simple. Until next time, keep your eye on your podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. <laughs>